Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Medicine, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Claire Clark, a host on the channel, and today we'll be talking to Jill Fisher about her new book, Adverse Events, Race, Inequality, and the Testing of New Pharmaceuticals. Jill Fisher, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Jill, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm a professor of social medicine at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and I'm core faculty in the Center for Bioethics. And how did you come to write Adverse Events? It actually stemmed out of my last project, which looked at um, how medical research is really being transformed in the United States. So that project came out of my dissertation Mm -hmm. um, and was published as my first book, Medical Research for Hire. And in that project, what I was really interested in was looking at how, even though we tend to think of academic medical centers as the primary site for medical research, that that's really shifted since the early 1990s and that more and more for-profit companies are involved in medical research than ever before. And not only companies, but just like even private practices are now conducting clinical trials. And over the course of doing that project, what I started to really notice was that There were a lot of facilities being built that were dedicated to early stage clinical trials. So first in human clinical trials or healthy volunteer clinical trials, and that companies were investing millions of dollars into these facilities. And even though it wasn't the focus of that project, I couldn't help but pay attention to it and and think, you know, this this was really potentially fodder for the next project. Um, and so that is, and that's how I ended up spending the next 10 years of my life kind of chasing that project and really thinking about what are these facilities, what kind of research is being conducted there, who's participating in these clinical trials. Um, and that became the basis of the research for adverse events. Well, well, we'll get into the methods and things that you used in a minute because you got access to, to um, a lot of really fascinating sites. Um, but first, what is a phase one clinical trial? And if, say, I wanted to enroll in a phase one clinical trial, what would I expect? Yeah, absolutely. Great question. So the way that we think about clinical trials is typically divided along phases. And phase one trials are those that are designed to test the safety um, or more often really the tolerability of an investigational new drug. And what that really means is that there are studies that are designed to ensure that a drug is safe enough um, to really proceed into wider spread testing and also to get a sense of what dose levels are appropriate to give to humans. And so for these clinical trials, they're pretty small scale and they're typically done using healthy volunteers. And that's in contrast to sort of the later phase clinical trials that are using patients. So like phase two trials, for instance, are those that um, are often fairly small scale, but you can kind of think of these as proof of concept trials where they use patients to see, you know, is this product going to work the way that we think it might work? And then 
um, also to collect some more data about safety. These three trials are the ones that I think like most of us kind of think about when we think about clinical trials. These are large scale, usually recruiting thousands of participants um, to really test whether or not uh, a product that's being developed might actually work to treat an illness. So the phase one trials are really not looking at whether or not the product might work, but just, you know, is it safe enough to, to continue testing? And what are the kinds of side effects might, that we might be able to expect patients could have from taking the product? So we've tried this with this drug in animals, and now we want to know, does it, would it kill people? Exactly. Exactly. And the bar is pretty low in the sense of whether or not a product will continue in that pipeline and continue to be tested that, um, you know, generally, I think it's about 80% of trial, uh, excuse me, products that start phase one trials will continue to the next phase. So it really, it is really just kind of asking the question of, of the product of, is it safe enough to continue testing? What does a phase one clinical trial look like from the standpoint of um, a healthy volunteer? Like, what are what would be the steps for taking part in one? Yeah. So the interesting thing about phase one trials is that they are held um, in such a way that everybody who enrolls, enrolls at the same time and participates together. So that's pretty different from later phase trials, where you can imagine that different um, centers that are part of that clinical trial are recruiting people and, you know, they kind of take them as they get them and everybody starts the clinical trial basically when they enroll. So I might enroll today and you might enroll three months from now. But phase one trials, they're held um, all at the same time and usually require some amount of time for participants to actually um, consent to a confinement period in in a residential inpatient kind of facility. And so participants typically screen for that trial to make sure that they're actually healthy enough to participate because they have to be healthy volunteers. Um, And that might mean, you know, having certain blood characteristics or a certain blood pressure, um, these kinds of things, a certain weight. Um, And then if they actually pass all those screening tests and procedures, then they might be invited to participate, at which point they would be given a date to check into the facility. Then they'd go through all those tests one one more time to Mm -hmm. make sure they were still healthy and eligible to participate. And if they were, then generally speaking, they would get dosed that next day after check-in with either the investigational drug or a placebo. And one thing that's also interesting about these studies is because they want to have everybody enroll and start at the same time, they typically over-enroll participants. So they have what are called backups or alternates also check into the facility in case either somebody doesn't show up when they're supposed to show up or somebody's um, blood work doesn't come back the way that they had expected and they're actually disqualified from the study. So in your introduction, you write... um, this is not a study about, meaning your book, um, it's not a study about big, bad pharma, although it could be. Can you say a little bit more about that? What, what do you mean? Yeah. So, you know, right now, I think there are a lot of excellent books and articles that are really looking at the practices of the pharmaceutical industry that are pretty shady. Um, mm-hmm. And 
you know, I think with good reason, I think these books are really important to have out there. I think most people are aware of how high drug prices are, but they're not necessarily aware of the fact that many of the drugs that are approved for the U.S. market are not nearly as safe as they appear when they're first approved and definitely not as effective as they seem to be when they were approved for the market. Um, not to mention all the marketing practices and, and different things that the pharmaceutical industry engages in in order to get their drugs actually prescribed to patients. So I think you know there's definitely a lot of attention to the bad practices of the pharmaceutical industry. And I think my study fits into that orbit of mm-hmm. um, kinds of research and studies about the pharmaceutical industry. But what I was really trying to do with the book was to provide a really in-depth exploration of what phase one trials are like, um, as opposed to a study that was really trying to condemn specific practices of the pharmaceutical industry. Of course, the pharmaceutical industry um, does get criticism <laughs> through the course of my book, but that really wasn't the goal of the project. Can you tell us a little bit about the methods that you used um, and that, you know, what, what date, how did you gather data? Um, how did you make sense of it? You, because yeah, like I said, like I said earlier, you got access. To, it seems like you got really unprecedented access to these sites. Yeah, and I mean that was definitely the most difficult part of this project. I can I can tell you that that was where most of the stress and anxiety of the project was because for it to be successful, I I knew that I had to be able to get access to facilities that were conducting these trials. And I also felt like it was really important to have enough clinics as part of my sample that not only could I have, you know, diversity among the kinds of places that I was going and observing, but also have some regional um, diversity too. So two of the facilities that I went to were on the East Coast, um, two in the Midwest and two in the on the West Coast. And that was really important to me because I suspected, and it turned out to be true, that participants might differ in these different regions of the country. And so I wanted to be able to get a sense of that, of, you know, what does um, the phase one industry and phase one participation look like across the United States? But as far as um, getting access, <laughs> mm-hmm. that really was hard because, you know, of course, there's not very there's not very much in it for a clinic to allow an outsider to come and observe what's happening. And so it really did take um, a lot of perseverance on my part and uh, no fear of rejection mm-hmm. to to get access. And so, yeah, there were many clinics that turned me down that I that I contacted and the ones that did end up allowing me to come and spend time in the clinics, I think were largely those that um, thought that it was really valuable to have a better understanding of the healthy volunteers who were participating at their clinics, who thought the kinds of the kind of work that I was doing was worthwhile. And I think, you know, the other part of it too, is that many of the staff who work in these facilities are curious about the background lives of the people that they're caring for in the clinics. And they know they can't really ask the kinds of questions that I was going to ask them. And so I think, you know, for them, it was kind of an interesting thing that I would be able to kind of pry into the personal lives of the participants that they were seeing every day in ways that they wouldn't have felt comfortable doing. And I think that was kind of an attractive reason for at least some of them uh, for allowing me to do my study. 
So let's talk a little bit about what you discovered. Why would a healthy volunteer be motivated to enroll in a clinical trial? So the main reason that a healthy person would want to enroll in one of these clinical trials is that they're compensated to participate. So healthy people, of course, can have no medical benefit from participating. They're healthy. So taking an investigational drug would only have risks to their health, not possible improvements. Um, and unlike a lot of other medical research, phase one trials pay pretty well for the time and energy it takes. So I think if we look at the average amount of payment that these studies have, um, it it kind of is based on the length of the trial. So these studies pay anywhere from $150 to $400 a day that someone has to spend in a facility. So the average clinical trial probably pays somewhere between two and $3,000, but I've seen studies that pay um, over $12,000 for people to actually enroll. And so money is highly motivating in terms of people's decision to participate. Sometimes there's this belief that it could be altruism that drives people to participate too. And I don't think that is typically the case. These trials really involve a lot. So to ask somebody to potentially give up a week or two or three or even a month of their life and to be locked into a research facility um, it's not going to be very many people who want to do that out of altruism alone. How does the culture of phase one participation vary from region to region, the different regions you looked at, or even from clinic to clinic? Yeah, so that was one of the things that really did surprise me. So on the East Coast, um, there's definitely more of a sense of what you could kind of think of as professional participants. So people who have enrolled in lots of clinical trials, who have sort of traveled the circuit, as they call it, um, and been to multiple clinics in, in especially the Northeast. Um, and so they're kind of savvy participants, and they often have a pretty well-developed critique of the pharmaceutical industry and of the clinical trials facilities. In the Midwest, at least at the time that I was doing this study, the, a lot of the clinics were new. And so there wasn't really that same history of participating in that region of the country at the time. Um, and so I would say that more of the participants were newer to clinical trials that most of the first time participants I met were in the Midwest. And a lot of them were just much more naive about participation. Uh, on the West Coast, I would say that it was sort of a blend of the kinds of people that I met in the Midwest and the East Coast. So you had lots of people who had done many, many clinical trials and were very savvy about it. But you also had a lot of people who um, were fairly new to clinical trials. Of course, the demographics differed, too, across these mm -hmm. regions. So on the East Coast, most of the healthy volunteers um, are Black or African-American uh, in part of the Midwest, the majority were Black or African American, but much more closely balanced with, with white participants. One of the clinics I went to was almost completely white participants in the Midwest, so that was really different. And then on the West Coast, most participants were Latino or Hispanic participants. And so, um, you know, that kind of tracks what the demographics are of these different regions in the U.S. But I think what was really astounding to me was that the majority of these participants really were underrepresented minorities, which is really in contrast to kind of how we think about uh, minority participation in clinical trials that 
typically we lament how difficult it is to get minorities into clinical trials. And here we have these phase one trials that are the riskiest, you could say, to participants, and yet um, they're being filled by minorities. And so for me, that was really striking um, and a really important part of the analysis that I wanted to do in this study. What, what's a model organism? <laughs> so a model organism is the term that's used particularly in um, non-human subject research, mm-hmm. where it's looking at the kinds of non-human animals that you want to use that best model either the disease that you're studying or the physiological process that is uh, part of either the disease or the treatment for a disease. And so certain areas of research have their preferred model organism. So, you know, mice are probably the quintessential model organism Mm -hmm. because they're so well used in many, many of the biomedical sciences. And, um, they're important in science because essentially what they help to do is bridge um, research protocols that might differ. So you don't necessarily have to be doing the same kind of research, but if you're using the same kinds of organisms, then you can kind of have a larger scientific conversation about how a disease might progress or what might be effective treatments for it. How do phase one trials produce model organisms? Yeah. So when I was thinking about what was going on in phase one research, I couldn't help but think about model organisms. And even though model organisms usually refer to non-human animals, um, it really seemed like there was something relevant here to phase one trials because healthy volunteers are being used to model something that doesn't apply to them in the same way that mice might be used to model physiological processes that are being applied to humans. So that was the first insight that I had, Mm -hmm. um, that we were using one group in order to try to um, model, especially what kinds of safety issues might come up in another group, i.e. patients. But the other thing that was really interesting to me was sort of the artificiality of what it means to be a healthy volunteer. So even though these clinical trials are said to be looking for healthy people, um, they don't necessarily mean just any old healthy person off the street, but they're really looking for very specific healthy people. And then on top of that, they want um, people to really engage in a lot of different health behaviors or restrictions in order to do these studies. So for example, you know, in order to participate in one of these studies, you might be asked not to eat any cruciferous vegetables for a week before you enroll. So like you have to abstain from eating any broccoli or cauliflower or things like that. Um, Certainly you wouldn't be allowed to take any illicit drugs or drink alcohol. Many of these studies don't allow smokers Um, you have to really refrain from a lot of physical activity as well. And so there's this sense that it's really not just taking somebody off the street that's healthy and asking them to take a drug, but it's really trying to um, create a very specific body that's, uh, that, that needs to be produced for the kind of science that's being done. And so for that reason, I thought it was helpful analytically to think about healthy volunteers as a type of model organism, because it really is um, a process of them trying to 
become the ideal subjects for this kind of research, especially because people who want to participate regularly in these clinical trials might actually change all of their health behaviors or many of their health behaviors, even when they're not doing clinical trials, because they want to be able to either maintain their eligibility for studies or maybe even enhance their eligibility for studies. And so they really kind of mold their lives to these clinical trials and to um, make themselves ideal participants. And that comes across in the book that it's more that, you know, participating in these in these trials is more than just a job. It sort of becomes a way of life. Um, can you what are some of the threats to validity of phase one trials? Obviously, they're pretty high stakes. They, you know, the companies want them to or academic medical centers want them to su- succeed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, one restriction that I should have mentioned a moment ago and I, I didn't think to was just a caffeine restriction. Um, many of us might not want to ever participate in a clinical trial like this merely because we'd have to abstain from caffeine for a certain period of time. And that might be really difficult for those mm-hmm. of us who are coffee addicts. Mm-hmm. Um But as I mean, kind of thinking about that in terms of what its implications, you know, might be, it's really an interesting thought that you have safety testing that's being done on individuals who are told not to drink or consume any kind of caffeine products. And yet in everyday life, people who are going to take these products um, as patients, so let's say something's prescribed to you, it's very, very likely that that patient is going to be consuming caffeine in some way. And so what we have really is um, an artificial kind of environment that is never going to really match real world conditions. And so from my perspective, that's a validity threat because what it essentially means is we don't know what safety concerns might come up um, when someone is taking this product and engaging in the kinds of behaviors that healthy volunteers aren't aren't allowed to, whether that's um, consuming caffeine or alcohol, cruciferous vegetables, mm-hmm. um, exercising. And so, you know, that's that to me, that is a question then about, well, how valid are these clinical trial results when healthy volunteers are being highly controlled in a in a highly controlling environment? How do research staff um, and the volunteers make sense of the risks that are associated with these studies? So I think even just asking the question of how risky are these studies is important. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that's unfortunately a really difficult question to answer. If you look at meta-analyses of these trials, so researchers have basically compiled, um, you know, hundreds or thousands of phase one trials together to see what is the rate of adverse events that might happen. Um, And generally speaking, they look fairly low risk in the sense that it's less than 1% of clinical trial participants who will have a very serious adverse event happen to them while they're in a study. Um, Now, that said, of course, people have been seriously injured. People have died by participating in phase one trial. So that does happen. That That is a risk of participating. What I think is more common is just the more mundane or routine <laughs> kinds of side effects that people might experience from being in these clinical trials. And so those same meta-analyses that show that overall these clinical trials are pretty safe also show 
that about 60% of participants will have at least one adverse event during the clinical trial. So that could be something like a headache, diarrhea, constipation, nausea, um, these kinds of things. And so I think what's interesting about it is just how the research staff and healthy volunteers make sense of both the routine things that could happen and do happen versus the possibility of death or um, a very serious long-term injury from clinical trials. And what's interesting is that staff routinely say that they think these clinical trials are really, really safe. um, But they also talk about how they would never participate in a clinical trial because it's not worth the risk that they could die um, so you have this, you know, ambivalence in a sense about the clinical trial risks that they see on a daily basis that almost nothing ever really goes that wrong, but they're very aware that something could go wrong. Can the you, participants you... are sort of interesting in a different way because they're the ones that are actually experiencing these adverse events, these um routine things that are going to happen. And so how they kind of think about what's happening to them is often comparing those same side effects or symptoms to things that they that could happen outside of the clinic. So participants will say things like, well, I could get a headache or diarrhea at home just as easily as I can from taking this investigational drug. So if you're going to pay me $3,000 to have a headache, that's worth it to me. Um, some participants might also minimize uh minimize those harms. So kind of think saying things like, well, you know, I've definitely had um, worse, worse symptoms when I had the flu than in this clinical trial, or some of the hangovers that I've had have been so much worse than this. Um, Other times participants even deny that the, that the symptoms that they're experiencing are actually due to the investigational drug or due to the clinical trial. So I think one common thing is that participants will say that it's the artificiality of the clinic that's making them feel sick as opposed to the actual drug. So, you know, I'm under these fluorescent lights. I haven't had any fresh air in a long time. And so I think that's why I'm so sleepy or that's why I have a headache. Um, Or maybe it's caffeine withdrawal that's making me feel so terrible as opposed to the actual um, exposure to an investigational drug. So these are ex- these are um, sort of interpretations that the volunteers are making on their own. They're not part of the consent process, right? Like mm-hmm. you may feel like you have a hangover, or you may <laughs> feel like you have the flu. Can you talk a little bit about the about informed consent? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, the informed consent process is pretty interesting too, because as I said. Um, these studies all have the the study happens in such a way that all the participants are there at once. And so even with the screening process, oftentimes what happens is that the clinics will bring in tens of potential participants in on the same day. And so even the consent process becomes this kind of mass consent process where they will have everybody sit in a room together and they'll have one of the research staff read through the consent form out loud to the participants, um, ask if they have any questions, um, answer any questions that come up, and then the participants then decide whether or not they want to consent to the study and, and go ahead with screening. And so it is really interesting to kind of witness these informed consent processes because you get a sense of what people are concerned about. And I think, you know, even though the risks are certainly discussed as 
the the informed consent process happens and that part of the form is read out loud. I think most participants are much more concerned about the the details of the trial, like you know how long do they have to stay there. Um, how many, even some of the procedures, like how many blood draws are there going to be during this study? Are there going to be any unusual procedures that happen, like perhaps a a spinal tap um, as part of a study? So I think it's not that the participants aren't paying attention to the risks. I think what I witnessed when I was observing these consent processes was mostly that participants were much more focused on the logistics of the study and also about the payment schedule of how quickly would they get paid? Um, what were some of the ways that the clinic might break up the payment? You know, because as I mentioned, that the studies typically have sort of this daily rate, but a lot of times what happens is some portion of the daily rate is held aside as a completion bonus. And this is generally meant to encourage people not to drop out of the study early. But, you know, it might be that they spend three weeks in the clinic, but most of the payment for that study is going to come a week or two after that when they come for their last outpatient visit. So participants are often really focused on that compensation schedule, when they're going to get their money and what the prorated amount might be if they end up dropping out early. And you you, you make a really interesting observation, which is that... Um, now, as bioethicists, we know you are not supposed to compensate people more if studies are riskier, right? Mm-hmm. But the volunteers um, associate risk with compensation. Can you talk a little bit about how, like, you know, what what is that relationship like? Like, if I'm going to be in a study that is really, you know, um, that's really risky, then I'm going to want more money for it. <laughs> Yeah. So people typically want to get paid more for things that they think are riskier, but they also seem to think that a high payment amount is a signal that a study is risky. And I think in some ways that's a misunderstanding, but in some ways there there might be some truth to it too, even though that the study is not literally paying for risk. Oftentimes the way that the study is designed um, is motivated by whatever risks there might be. So let me explain a little bit. So, you know, for instance, um, if you have a clinical trial where a participant is taking one single dose of a drug, well, you can imagine that that study is going to be a shorter study than a clinical trial in which participants are asked to take um, a single dose daily of that drug for 14 days, or maybe multiple doses daily for 21 days. Now, not every drug is going to be riskier taking it um, 14 times as opposed to one time, but it's not it's not hard to imagine that there's an, an additional risk the more you're exposed to a drug. So in that sense, you know, the study is really only going to be paying for your time, but the time might have something to do with risk. I think where it got a little bit trickier to explain was for some of these unusual procedures. So I mentioned um, the spinal tap, which is really the, the the terminology that participants use. It's technically called a lumbar puncture. Um, these aren't that common in phase one trials, but they're certainly done. And without a doubt, clinical trials that have lumbar punctures pay more for the amount of time that participants are in the clinic. 
Sometimes it's only about $1,000 more. Sometimes it's $2,000 more. And the clinics will say they're not paying for risk, that they're paying because there's an extra inconvenience to participants to uh, undergo the lumbar puncture. They also argue that uh, you can't have too many lumbar punctures done in a, in, a, in a period of time, like let's just say a year. So if a participant opts to have a lumbar puncture at their clinic as opposed to another clinic, they should be compensated. But all of this seems like it's a lot of justification to just try to get around the fact that they are paying participants more for the extra risk of that procedure and to encourage people to participate in those studies. Because otherwise, if it's a 14-day study, and you could get paid the same amount as another 14-day study where there is no lumbar puncture, what would really encourage people to be in the study that um, is the same amount of time, the same amount of pay with an extra risky procedure? So I think in that way, that's where it gets complicated. Um, And you can kind of see that participants might be onto something when they're worried that some studies pay more for risk. Now, where I think it's not true that the study compensation is tied to risk is based on the elements of the investigational drug. So um, most of the time, you're not going to see studies that pay more for one type of drug, let's say a diabetes drug versus another, let's say an antihistamine. So in that regard, um, it's not the kind of inherent risks of the drug itself that are going to dictate how much a study pays. Can you talk a little bit about how stigma operates in the sort of phase one trial industry? Yeah. So, of course, medical research is stigmatized in various ways. Um, I think with healthy volunteers in particular, you could really imagine how it's stigmatized because these are healthy people who aren't going to benefit from being in the research and they are doing it for the money. So there's almost the sense that if you're participating in this kind of clinical trial, you must be really desperate for money. And so I think that's where the stigma comes from. And so that I think is one of the reasons why a lot of people who end up participating in these studies don't talk about it with um, a lot of people with sometimes they keep it a secret from very close friends and family members even. But what I was trying to do in the book is to kind of look at stigma in a more holistic way And how perhaps um, allowing oneself to have the stigma of medical research participation, you might actually be helping to mitigate other stigmas. And so a lot of the participants in these studies, as I mentioned, are um, minority participants, but they're often people who are unemployed, um, who don't have a high level of education. Many of them have a history of incarceration. Um, So they have lots of stigmas that affect them in their everyday lives. And by being able to participate in medical research and get the compensation and income from these clinical trials, they might actually be able to kind of present themselves as much less worse off than they actually are. And that this kind of helps with their social networks because then people don't realize that they might be struggling as much as they actually are. So an example of this is one of the participants whom I met in the in on the East Coast, um, and he had a full time job, and his wife had a full time job, but they were really having trouble making ends meet, and wanted to be able to put their kids through um, through private school to through Catholic school, um, mostly because the participant himself worked uh, 
in, on the janitorial staff of a public school and was really concerned about the quality of education his kids would get if if um, if they went to public school. And so what he ended up doing was participating in a clinical trial every time he needed to pay their tuition for their Catholic school. And what was really striking to me was that he didn't tell anybody but his wife that he was doing these clinical trials. So his friends, his fam- his, fam- his close family members didn't have any idea. And they really marveled at how he was able to afford to send his kids to, to Catholic school. And I thought that was so interesting that he was really being able to project a very different sense of himself by um, by keeping the clinical trial participation a secret and making it seem like he and his wife were really excellent money managers um, and really able to to um, save money for their kids' tuition and do this. And so I think there are lots of examples like that where um, stigma operates in, in very interesting ways in this domain. Um, can you talk a little bit about inequality and how sort of the the hidden nature of these phase one clinical trials is sort of papers over some some pretty serious disparities? Yeah. So, I mean, I've already mentioned that who these participants are. And I mean, I think it is really important to recognize that the reason why these individuals are enrolling in clinical trials is because we we do live in a in a highly um, unequal society with racial injustice, with limited opportunities for some groups of people, and that's what makes these particular kinds of financial opportunities attractive to particular groups of people. Um, and so, you know, I think it's really important to kind of think about that because. You know, over the course of doing this research, I often had people ask me, well, why do you study the U.S.? Isn't it more important to look at developing countries where we're outsourcing clinical trials because we're really taking advantage of those people? And of course, that's important to look at. I mean, I don't mean to take away from that. I think there's a lot of um, important work to do looking at uh, Africa or Asia and how outsourcing clinical trials might be taking advantage of individuals in those countries. But I think what was really striking to me was a lack of recognition of how we do that within our own country and how we really take advantage of the structural inequalities that exist here and how invisible it is to people that most of the time people don't even know that these facilities actually exist where medical research is being conducted um, or that people are trying to earn an income or at least supplement their incomes by participating in clinical trials. And I think you know, the other part of it is that the people who are participating in these clinical trials typically don't have health insurance um, or are underinsured if they do have basic health insurance. They're not likely to be able to afford medications um, once these kinds of products that they're testing get on the market should they need them one day. Um, or if they have family members who are sick, that oftentimes they're not getting the kind of treatment and care that they need. So we're really exploiting a group of people in order to um, develop drugs in this way. And so for me, that's a really important part of the story and why it really does need attention. Why do you think there hasn't been any controversy or scientific backlash against the phase one industry? Why? Why? I mean, why? Why is it invisible? <laughs> I'm 
not sure why it has been able to stay in the shadows as well as it has. I mean, you know, I guess it was about 15 years ago, there was a a Bloomberg report that looked at um, how one particular company uh, was operating a former Holiday Inn as a research facility. And it and, you know, it was just really abysmal conditions and they were enrolling lots of undocumented immigrants. Um, and so it got a lot of media coverage. And I think there was some uproar around it. And then that company closed up shop um, and it was almost like, oh, well, the problem is solved as opposed to maybe this is just the tip of the iceberg and we really need to look at this industry. Um, so I think in part, it's just there might not be that much of a will to uh, to think about these issues. And then I think, you know, I, I am situated in the field of bioethics, and I think the field of bioethics has been much more interested and perhaps even obsessed with the healthy volunteers themselves as opposed to the industry. And what I mean by that is there's been a lot of attention to the rule breaking that participants engage in. So, you know, whether or not they're waiting the right amount of time between clinical trials, whether they're lying about their health behaviors, um, all of these kinds of things. And I think there just hasn't been enough attention to the, the actual practices of the industry or the clinics themselves that are conducting these trials to show um, one, that they're complicit with some of these behaviors, you know, that if participants are breaking the rules, it's not, it's not hard to imagine that the clinics are, are aware of that and either not policing it appropriately or encouraging it in some ways. But also that this is, you know, I think probably even more importantly, that this is a hugely profitable industry. Um, and that context of, Uh, of commercial clinical trials is really important here to understand not only what the motivations of clinics might be, but of the pharmaceutical industry itself um, for ensuring that these clinical trials are being conducted as rapidly as they possibly can and enrolling people as quickly as they can. And um, that really does mean recruiting from people who uh, are perhaps the, the most economically in need. Do you have any thoughts about what might be done to correct some of the problems that you outline? I definitely think that there needs to be more regulation of the industry just from visiting these clinics and um, seeing the conditions. I mean, I was really shocked in some cases um, just ba- just based on what I was witnessing that, you know, these are places that are being run in former warehouses that are being converted into clinics. Um, office parks that weren't designed as medical research facilities, but, you know, just suites uh, that are being rented in office parks. Um, that There's not really any oversight of whether or not a place is really equipped to, to run clinical trials. There's also not much attention to capacity. So, you know, you could stack lots of bunk beds in a windowless room and house lots of participants. And that's sort of how it's done right now. It's not about participant comfort. Um, and to the extent that it's about participant safety, safety is really only being defined in terms of um, the clinical trial protocols, not the actual environment where the studies are being conducted. So I think, you know, if you can kind of imagine even a system of restaurant inspection being applied to research clinics, I think that could go a very long way in trying to just 
improve the quality of the clinics that are conducting clinical trials and at least make sure that these profitable companies are investing in their spaces and investing in their participants as opposed to just making themselves uh, more profitable in the long run. Well, Jill, we've taken up a lot of your time. What are you working on now? So the project that I'm working on now is sort of um, a continuation, I guess you could say, of some of these thoughts that we've been talking about. Um, In particular, I've teamed up with a colleague of mine, Rebecca Walker, who is a philosopher and also at UNC in social medicine and bioethics. And she has for a long time studied animal research ethics. So we've been delving more deeply into this concept of the model organism and kind of thinking more about what does it mean, not only in terms of phase one trials and how perhaps phase one trials should be regulated and what lessons we might be able to learn from animal research ethics, particularly along the lines of welfare, but also kind of thinking about how do animal researchers understand issues of translation and um, reproducibility and validity and so that's what we've been working on for the last couple of years. Um, and it's both a continuation of phase one trials, but also um, having me delve more deeply into the world of non-human animal research. So it's been oh, that, exciting in that way. That sounds like a really great project. Yeah, um, it's been fun. Great. Um, I, Jill, I want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to have been a part of it, Claire. <laughs>